Well, good morning, church family. Great to see you all in church this morning. Uh, open up your Bibles, as you were already asked to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're actually going to begin a couple verses earlier and end a couple verses later. Uh, we're going to start at verse 11 and go through to chapter 7, verse 4. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, open it up. As you're turning there, I just want to tell you that this nastiness on my forehead is not monkeypox. It's, um, it's shingles. I got shingles on my face, into my scalp, around my ear. And so just a little prayer request. If you think about your poor old pastor this week, pray two things, that the shingles don't get into my eye, because apparently that's bad. And also pray that I don't drive myself bananas scratching my ear at night, because it's so itchy. Keep me in your prayers. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning at verse 11, this passage is one that is pastorally instructive. So we're going to do the heavy lifting in the text, we're going to apply it, and don't be surprised if it cuts a little close to the bone, if it pinches a little bit, because this passage is instructive for our Christian lives. It speaks directly to our relationships. It speaks to things that are core and essential to our very existence as human beings. It speaks to our affections. How much time do we think about our affections? Where are they pointed? Which affections are godly and good? And which of our affections are misplaced affections that are in fact sinful? It's going to speak to that. It's going to speak to the state of our hearts as made manifest in our relationship. So as we jump in, let me show you this passage has bookends. Okay, look at chapter 6, verse 13. In return, Paul says, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. Look down to the end of the book, end in chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your heart for us. Okay, so Paul is talking about Christian relationships with one another as Christians. How do you relate to other believers? Well, he bookends this passage by saying, have a great, big, wide open heart when you're relating to other believers. Right? Do you see that in the text? That's what he's saying. But in between these two bookends, he conversely says, don't be overly close to the world. Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked. Chapter 7, verse 1. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. So Paul is answering this question of Christian relationships and affections, and he's saying, how do you relate to the church and to the gospel as a Christian? With a heart that's wide open. How do you relate to the world? How do you relate to secular paganism and idolatry? Verse 17, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. So that's the framework that we're dealing with in this passage, Christian relationships and what they look like. With that in mind, let's jump into chapter 6, verse 14. In verses 14 forward, Paul sets out five theoretical questions. Perhaps you heard them when Claudine read them to us. These five questions and their rhetorical answers show that the people of God are to be distinct and separate from the beliefs affections, and practices 
of an unbelieving world. Listen, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Here's a question. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Another question. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You'll notice that Paul leads into these five theoretical questions with an exhortation. He starts off with verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, this picture of being unequally yoked is not something that Paul just came up with on his own. In fact, he is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, where God's people are instructed and they're told, when you put animals into a yoke that there's going to be pulling, um, don't put an ox with an ass. Don't put animals that are different under the same yoke. Because they're going to pull at different strengths. They're going to pull in different directions. And it's only going to come to ruin. That's what God instructs his people in Deuteronomy 22, agrarian culture. He's telling them what to do in the fields. Paul takes that same picture and he applies it moving forward to the Christian life. So what's Paul saying? Well, he's saying that the Christian man or woman is so distinctly different from a non-believing person that we ought not to be put under the same yoke. It's going to lead to disaster. Well, the first and perhaps most obvious application for this, and maybe one that you've heard many times, is the application of marriage. Paul is cautioning the single Christian people in Corinth not to pursue marital relations with someone who is not a believer. That's the first thing that he's saying. It's very specific in its application. Paul is instructing people who are Christians, who are just starting to court and date, and he's saying, don't go there, right? saying if the person isn't a believer, don't even start down that path because your affections might get out ahead of you. You get your nose over your skis and you're going to get yourself in trouble. Don't do it. Don't be unequally yoked. He forbids it. Well, several years ago, I found myself single after almost a decade of marriage and I was out there dating. And I used an app called Christian Mingle. You guys ever heard of that? Yeah, maybe you've seen the ads on TV. Look, I'm not promoting it. I'm just confessing my sin. Um, I thought, I want to find a Christian woman, and the best way to do that is just tick boxes, right? They have to be Christian. They have to like children. They have to be able to put up with a crazy, whatever, you know, so I tick the boxes. And I very quickly discovered that most of the people on Christian Mingle were not Christians, but really wanted to mingle. And the only, the only point that I want to draw out of this is the first and perhaps most obvious one. Remember that Paul is instructing this in the context of defining Christian relationships, okay? And Paul would say to you this morning, if you are a Christian and if you are single, do not date an unbeliever. That's starting point. Now, you might look at that and you say, R.D., you're being a little bit too harsh, right? Perhaps I could 
marry an unbeliever and it would be a secondary issue. We'd get along just fine. Not a chance. You're going to have different worldviews. You're going to have different ideas about how to allocate scarce resources of time and energy and money. You're going to have different ideas about what values to raise your children with. It's not going to be easy because you are different and you are unequally yoked. Or maybe you look at it and you say, well, RD, I want to do missionary dating. <laughs> I'm going to date someone and I'm going to marry them and then they're going to get converted and come to Christ. Well, you got the cart ahead of the horse. See them converted first and then start dating them. Okay, Paul is describing Christian relationships to others. And he says, do not be unequally yoked. Now, to be clear, I want to restate the fact that Paul is talking about single Christians who are heading into relationships, and that's what he's saying. But back in 1 Corinthians, he addresses a different issue, and again, this is the context of how Christians relate to others. He addresses people who are already married, and then one party comes to faith. Because that's another scenario that genuinely happens. He says, how do you relate in that situation? Well, he instructs those people, and he says, don't abandon the marriage. Stay married to the unbelieving spouse in that case. And then he goes even further. He says, don't berate them or badger them, thinking that that's going to lead them to faith in Christ. Instead, love them. Stay in that relationship and love them until they see the beauty and the glory of what a life in Christ looks like, and that will draw them and lead them to the same faith that is yours in Christ. But Paul's giving very specific instruction. He's saying, do not be unequally yoked. We have to be very careful with how we read and apply this passage, okay, so as we move forward. Remember, the issue that Paul's getting at here is your relationships with the world. And Paul makes it personal because he starts in the home. That's what he's saying. Critical for Paul, for the Corinthians, and for us today. It's critical, friends, because the stakes are so eternally, immeasurably high. The stakes when it comes to Christians and how we relate to a secular world is nothing less than truths about God, truths about Christ, Christian commitment that is set in the context of dark and seductive idolatry and paganism. That's, that's what we're dealing with when we come to these questions of how does a Christian navigate relationships. Well, if we drill even further into chapter 6, verse 14, I want to pull out a second, maybe less obvious, but more broadly applicable truth. Paul is talking about the context of marriage, but he's also talking in general terms about how a Christian man or woman relates to a secular world and to its values. And Paul is instructing in no unclear terms. Separation from paganism. Separation from idolatry. Separation from 
any form of worldly belief and practice. Now look, I know as well as you do that separation and holiness is not a popular topic in church these days. In fact, in many church circles, in an effort to get more bums in pews, issues of separation and Christian holiness will be watered down and diluted, right? We don't want to talk about uncomfortable things, especially not on Father's Day. But separation and holiness is actually central to the Christian life. In the Old Testament in Leviticus and also in the New Testament in 1 Peter, God instructs his people with this clear commandment. He says, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so Christians are always trying to, under the leading of the word of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, trying to chart a course that on the one hand does not capitulate to secularism, but on the other hand does not wrongly define separation and holiness by external legalism and pharisaism. A whole bunch of big words, but do you know what I'm talking about? It's a, it's a course that we have to chart of separation and holiness that is razor fine and hard as diamonds. You don't want to miss on either side. Because God has in Christ saved you and set you apart for the purpose of holiness and separation. You know, friends, um, the separation that Christians experience from the world is not just something that's theoretical or abstract. It's concrete and real. Our lives as Christians should outwardly look different than the world around us. But in what way? What does this holy separation look like? Well, I want to remind you that it's possible to get it wrong, even with the best of intent. If you define your separation and your holiness by merely outward behaviors, then the Bible has a word for you, and it's Pharisee. If you take the requirements of God and you push them even farther, thinking that God is going to give you more points for being more conservative than him. That's not biblical holiness or separation. Verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst. Do you hear that? And be separate from them. The separation that the Christian man or woman has from the world around us is precisely on the issue of how we relate to sin. That's what makes us different than the world around us. And I want to propose to you a couple of ways that we are different than the world around us when it comes to the issue of sin. The first one is that Christian men and women believe that there is actually such thing as sin. We, as Christians, believe that not all worldviews, desires, affections, decisions, or behaviors are all equal but different. We don't believe that. We believe that there is a construct that God describes as sin, which is directly translated any time that Christians miss the mark of God's best. We believe that sin exists. 
Well, that's going to make you separate from the world. The second thing that we believe about sin that makes us different is that we, we believe it exists, and secondly, we believe that God alone defines it. Okay, we believe that God alone gets to tell us what is sin and what is not. Look, we often focus on the destructive forces of sin in our lives and in our relationships, but sin is primarily not that. Sin is our rebellion against an offense against a holy God. And so he and he alone gets to define what is sin. Even and especially when it's things that we wish weren't there. He does so in his word to us. The third thing that sets us apart from the world in our relationship to sin is that we also believe that God has not left us to deal with our sin on our own. As Christians, we believe that God forgives us in Christ when we acknowledge our sin and repent. We believe that God cancels the power of sin over us so that we can be different than the world by repenting and returning to the Lord. So so we believe sin exists. We believe that God defines it. We believe that God in Jesus not only defines it, but cancels it when we repent. And the fourth thing that we believe about sin that will make us different We believe that as Christians, we still sin. But when we do, that sinful behavior is now external to who we are. It's not our identity. Our identity is rooted as being new creations in Christ, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 5. See, Christians are different. We're different than the world around us. We're separate, and they are not external matters that make us separate. They're deep matters. They're the matter of how we relate to sin. And so so let's pull together what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying Christians are different because they have hearts that are wide open towards one another. But no fellowship with the world and with its secular paganism. Christians have hearts that are enormously open to each other, but we refuse to be accepting, endorsing, celebrating sin. Come out from it, Paul says. Be separate from it. What fellowship does light have with darkness? We refuse to deconstruct sin and demythologize it and just reach a detente with it and say, well, that's just the way it is going to make you different than the world around you okay so Paul is saying do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers that's what he's saying he's saying in verse 14 15 and 16 he says there's nothing that you have in common righteous and the wicked there's no fellowship between Christ and Satan You have so radically a different view of life, sin, and holiness that you will feel at odds with, not in fellowship with, the world around you. I think this is increasingly so in our world today as secular culture calls 
sin, virtue. Listen, I could preach an entire series on Christian separation and holiness, what it is and what it isn't. But suffice it now just to say, we get it wrong when we define holiness by outer trappings. Paul is concerned with defining it around how we deal with sin. And in this passage, he's dealing with two sins in particular. The sin of idolatry and the sin of sexual immorality. The reason Paul chooses these two is because they are so closely linked. And so Paul here in our passage is driving specifically at how Christians relate to paganism. Perhaps you heard that in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He's talking about how we relate to other religious views. And there's this uncomfortable, unpopular truth. You know, if Paul were around today, I think he would be far less comfortable with what we call interfaith dialogue and participation than many so-called Christians are. Paul would tell you, don't go to a Muslim prayer meeting. Don't go to a Hindu prayer meeting. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Paul uses the argument from extreme to make the smaller point. He says, what fellowship does Christ have with Belial or Satan? Look, I'm sure we could all agree that Christians have no right participating in satanic sacrifices. Would you agree with that? Well, if that's true, then so is this. A Christian's relationship to idolatrous paganism and secularism is to have no fellowship with it. So what are the dominant secular idolatries, religions of our day? I think, friends, we are all too aware that this is Pride Month. And Christians are inundated with this secular pagan religion. Yes, I want to be clear. This messaging of Pride Month that is bombarding you and your children is just not, it's not just another more compassionate, more loving, more evolved worldview. It is a religion. It's secular, it's pagan, and it's idolatrous. Paul is giving pastoral instruction here that cuts us close to the bone. Believe me, I feel as uncomfortable preaching this as you hear, feel hearing it. But as Christians who are committed to the whole counsel of God, we hear this, we're uncomfortable, and we're forced to make a decision. Will I see myself and my world through the lens of the gospel? Or will I see it through the lens of secular, idolatrous paganism? Well, we at St. George's have this deep conviction that God's word is the best. It is the most loving because it's true. And so we're going to just unpack this for a moment and apply it. You, you might be thinking, R.D., why didn't you just leave it alone, right? Just wanted to come to church, hear a nice little sermon about Father's Day, right? Why kick the hornet's nest? 
Well, the answer is because you and your children are being bombarded with messaging from this secular religion of pride 24 hours a day, seven days a week for at least this month, we need to present a biblical gospel perspective in response at least one Sunday. I didn't, I didn't go looking for this. Just in the passage, so I'm going to preach it. Pride, as it's called, is a secular religion. And that's what we want to deal with today. Look, I don't want to preach some kind of exhaustive sermon on human sexuality. Uh, We'll preach those topics sometime when they come up in scriptures. I don't want to pick on that. I just want to look at pride as a religion. I know Brian is uh, sending out this afternoon some resources that you can follow up with and read and order on Amazon or borrow from me. They should be helpful. But today I want to zero in on this. Specifically, pride as a religion. A religion that Christian men and women must come out from and separate themselves from and have no fellowship with. I'm not making this up. This is scripture. You may say, gosh, R.D., it's a little bit of a stretch, isn't it? Calling pride a religion? Well, friends, one of the best ways to unpack religions and to expose them is to look at the religious symbols that they use. So Christianity has a central symbol. What is it? The cross. Why do we have the cross? Well, because it is central to our faith that our leader shows us the God who does not conquer by killing, as other religions, but by dying. Right? And so we have the symbol of the cross. You want to know about Christianity? Start with the cross. If you want to know about the religion, secular idolatrous religion of pride, what symbol does it use? The rainbow. And it uses the rainbow to somehow purport that all of these different colors are held together in a unity and that creates something beautiful. That's the message. That by affirming all of these distinct colors and all these distinct identities, holding them all together, that that's something beautiful and good and virtuous. Well, friends, the rainbow has been a religious symbol long before the end of the 20th century. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God said to Noah, I'm going to put this ark in the sky. Remember this? It's a rainbow. And he says, this rainbow will serve for you every time it rains. You'll see the rainbow in the sky, and you'll remember the covenant that I made with you to never again destroy the earth with a flood. You see, the rainbow is actually a symbol of the fact that God takes sin so seriously that he's willing to wipe life off the face of the planet with a flood. And the the rainbow is also a symbol of the fact that humanity is saved by the faithfulness of one man. So friends, every time you see a rainbow in the sky or on a flagpole, remember this. Thank God for saving you from your sin and from his wrath by the faithfulness of Jesus. Look, I don't want to belabor the point, but I just want to anchor it. 
Paul's central point here is how Christians relate to secular, pagan, idolatrous religions, and the pride movement is just that. But the gospel is a better way. You and your children are being told that as it relates to the issue of pride, you fall into only one of two ironically binary camps. Okay? You either fully accept and embrace and affirm, or you are bigoted and you are phobic. That's what you're being told. That's the framework that you're being given. But the gospel actually rejects both of those framework, and it offers something better, a third option. A third option that begins with the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that every single human being stands equal before the cross of Christ, sinners in need of a Savior. You see, pride is a religion that denies the lordship of Jesus in defining sin. Pride is a secular religion that tells you that the destruction that comes with sin and the sense of guilt that you carry before God is resolved by pressing into your sin and giving yourself over to it completely and accepting it. Well, the gospel, the third way, starts with the lordship of Christ. It says that he and he alone, through his word, defines sin, even and especially when we don't like it. The gospel tells us further that God in Christ not only defines the problem of sin and offense, but dealt with it on the cross. This is the gospel. That God has made a way of salvation for all sinners. Now this is the particularly insidious message of the religion of pride. It frames itself as being loving. But any Christian person knows that encouraging yourself or encouraging others to give themselves over to displaced affections and sin is not loving at all. That's true of all sin, not just sexual immorality. Now listen, sometimes as Christians, we act as though sexual immorality is the worst sin, right? We somehow put it in a category amongst others and say, yeah, yeah, there's all those sins. Oh, but then there's that one. That's the whopper. That's not true. In one sense, in a vertical sense, all sin is equal because it's offending against and rebelling against the holiness of God. And so sexual immorality is no worse sin than any other sin. I mean, there, there are differences in terms of, vertic- of horizontal implications of sins, but for the purpose of this point, all sin is the same. It's not the worst sin. You know what the worst sin is? Do you know that Jesus said that there is a worst sin? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said the worst sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He said, in fact, that's such a bad sin that if that's the orientation of your heart in a determined way, you cannot be forgiven. What does that mean? 
Jesus is saying that the worst sin is not sexual immorality. The worst sin is in a determined, decided way, refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and show you the glory of your Savior. The worst sin is to deny the existence of sin and to deny the existence of a Savior. That's why Paul exhorts Christians to have nothing to do with secular paganism. That's why Christians today should have nothing to do with the pride movement, because it denies the existence of sin. And in denying the existence of sin, it inoculates people against the power of salvation. It's only when we acknowledge sin on God's terms that we can be pressed into the beauty of a Savior. So what's truly loving, I'd ask? I would say it's truly loving to warn, to plead, and to exhort. It's truly loving for Christians to reject worldly secular paganism, to have no fellowship with it, for the good of their own soul and for the good of the souls of the people that they love. This is Paul's plea for Christians to have no fellowship with secular worldly religions that deny the existence of sin and undercut the power of a Savior. Let's conclude with verses 17 to 18. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Well, God never gives an exhortation or prohibition without also giving a promise. And this promise that he gives in verses 17 to 18 is to all. This is the promise of the good news of Jesus. Good news for every person who by the power of the Holy Spirit knows themselves to be sinners in need of a Savior. Verse 18. I'll be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. What a fitting and appropriate passage for Father's Day. You want to know what God is like? Well, he's like a loving father. And maybe you were blessed like I was to have a godly father who, in his actions, showed you the very nature and character of your heavenly father. But maybe you had a father who was less than ideal. But even that experience with the Father showed you what the Heavenly Father is like because all of those traits that you longed for in your earthly father that you wished were there are all fulfilled in your Heavenly Father. See, this is the promise of God. This is the promise of the Gospel. I'll be a father to you and you'll be my sons and daughters. Now you say, well, R.D., that seems like a conditional offer of fatherly love. It's not. We'll conclude with chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice the progression in verse 1. He says, since we already have these promises, beloved, 
Therefore, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. You see, the secular worldviews and religions all fall apart on this point. They tell you that you are loved by your identity group insofar as you fit into them, insofar as you conform to their outer trappings. That's how you're loved and accepted. Secular religions force you to work for love and to try to get to that point where you're loved and accepted. The gospel tells us that the Christian life is always from love and never for love. The gospel says if you only knew how much God loves you, if you only realize the promises that are yours in Christ, then that would set you off on a path of destroying and mortifying the sin in your life. A couple of weeks ago, we saw Paul say um, that we want to please God as well-loved children. That's the picture. When that love that God has for you in Jesus truly finds a place in your heart, you make holiness your aim. You're still going to sin. You're still going to miss the mark. But when you do, you will deal with sin in a way that is different than the world around you by repenting and returning to the Lord. So do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that your spirit even now would grant us the faith to believe that your word is always good for your people, even at times when it presses us and challenges us. God, would you convict us of ways that we've allowed secular religions and secular narratives to form our thinking around what is truly loving and best human practice and holiness. God, I pray that you would teach us to look to you as our loving Father, and to pursue holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.